Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. It's Kevin Canary, and today I am joined by my friends and colleagues, Ravi Ambani and Andrew Wishy. We're here to share some exciting news about a new book we wrote that you're going to want to get your hands on. Last year, the three of us met to prepare for the certifying exam in vascular surgery. To our surprise, the biggest struggle wasn't finding the time to study together or the fact that we were using virtual platforms. It was a lack of a single, high-quality, accurate, and affordable resource to help us dominate the oral boards. We searched everywhere and came up empty-handed. Then we had an idea. If we couldn't find what we were looking for, why not create it ourselves? So we did just that, used it to pass our oral boards, and now we want to share it with you. The Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review has 60 of the highest yield scenarios in an easy-to-read question-and-answer format that highlights the most important clinical concepts, concise procedural descriptions, and common surgical complications that everyone should know about the field of vascular surgery. This book is intended for all audiences, including surgical trainees, practicing surgeons, interested medical students, or anyone who wants to have a collection of the most common vignettes in our specialty. Get ready for the book to drop on Amazon and the Behind the Knife premium page on March 1st. Until then, dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife. My name is Craig Brown, and I'm joined with uh, Frank Davis and Nick Osborne. We're your vascular surgery team. Uh, we spent the last couple episodes talking about our first case was carotid disease, and then we talked about peripheral arterial disease and super boring nomenclature. But today, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something that I think the three of us are a little bit more passionate about, which is aortic disease. And uh, specifically, we wanted to focus today on um, a case study talking about endoleak management, uh, because as endovascular repairs have been expanded to more and more aneurysms. This is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, we think that, you know, endoleak management is really individualized on the kind of per patient level, depends on the type of graph, patient characteristics and things like that. Uh, but we have one case today that was particularly challenging. We want to use that to kind of illustrate a couple of the concepts, important points, and then a couple of pitfalls about endoleak management. Um, so uh, the endoleak naming system and categorization, stuff like that is a little bit overwhelming. So Frank, why don't we start and just have you remind us of the types of endoleaks in the naming convention. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Craig. So to start with, as there's five basic types of endoleaks, and a couple of these have subcategorizations within each type that are worth knowing. So first and foremost, we'll start with a type one endoleak, which describes the continued pressurization of the aneurysm sac through blood flow around either the proximal or distal ends of your endograft. Um, specifically, type 1 endoleaks are split into a type 1A, which is an endoleak around the proximal stent of your endograft, or a type 1B, which is a leak around the distal end of your endograft. These are most commonly identified at the time of initial endograft placement, and we'll get into details of the management in a minute. The second type of endograft, a type 2 endoleak, are the most common and involve backfilling of the aneurysm sac through some type of branching vessel or collateral vessel, with the aorta. Most commonly, it's either the inferior mesenteric artery or some lumbar arteries. Um, some people describe these subcategories into two types, but I think it's worthwhile knowing that just the type 2 is typically the most common endoleak seen. Next is a type 3 endoleak, which involves a leak in the middle of the endograft, either due to a defect in the graft material or a misalignment of the components of the endograft. Um, and that's when you, as you build out your endograft, you typically link the main body piece to your distal limbs, and it's typically a leak around there. 
Type 4 endorrheics are uncommon um, in the current generation of grafts, and although they were common in the early first generation of endoleak grafts, type 4 endoleaks are described as a leakage through the endograft material itself. So it's almost like a porosity in the material, and it's not actually a defect in the graft material. Um, last but not least, there's a type 5 endoleak, which is often called an endotension. In general, this is a very poorly understood endoleak, but it's thought to be due to sac pressurization transmitted through the graft material or the thrombus. Um, but we won't spend a lot of time on type 5 endoleaks today be because I, I don't think those are the most common ones we see today uh, and, or you'll manage during your surgical career. Awesome. Thanks, Frank. So that's a perfect summary. Really uh, nice broad view of endoleaks and hopefully kind of brings everybody up to speed uh, as we uh, go ahead and discuss endoleak management. So Nick, why don't you start us off by uh, introducing the case? All right. Great. Thanks. So uh, this first case here we have is a 65-year-old gentleman who has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, the normal run-of-the-mill vascular problems, uh, as well as uh, infrarenal aneurysm, which initially measured about six centimeters in diameter. Um, and he had undergone an EVAR back in 2016 with a gore excluder endograft uh, on his completion angiogram at the time of his uh, placement and on his initial post-op CT scan. Uh, he had a type 2 endoleak that appeared to be arising from some of his lumbars. Uh, and uh, Initial management included kind of watching this, and on his 12-month post-op CT, he had a type 2 endoleak that was persistent, and his aneurysm had actually grown to 6.9 centimeters. Thanks, Nick, for setting up that case. But, but I think it's important. Let's pause there and kind of talk about this patient and kind of indications for an intervention for a type 2 endoleak. I mean, Craig, why don't you go over some of the SVS guidelines for type 2 endoleak? I mean, this patient has clearly expanded despite the best efforts to try to place an endovascular device. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the reality is, is that the guidelines aren't super helpful for this. And it turns out that there's actually pretty poor data around uh, type 2 endoleaks and kind of um, their management. The most recent guidelines were published in uh, the January issue of uh, the Journal of Vascular Surgery in 2018. And interestingly, they, they mention very few specifics around indications for intervention for type 2 endoleaks. Um, they cite two papers. The uh, most recent one was from 2014, believe it or not. Um, the context around type 2 endoleak management is that we used to be really aggressive in fixing type 2 endoleaks. Um, we thought that they were, you know, really scary and that the patients did really poorly if they had type 2 endoleaks. But um, uh, back in the day, the indications were really around uh, persistence of the endoleak. So oftentimes, uh, in the indications were kind of discussed as being uh, treating endoleaks that persisted beyond a year or those that were associated with a five millimeter or greater sac expansion per year. And so um, this paper from 2014, which is kind of a, the most recent of the papers that get discussed in the most recent guidelines, is this paper from the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery that details the conservative management of type 2 endoleaks in a, in a patient cohort of about 1,000 patients. And so in that study, in a study of 1,000 patients, not a single patient with an isolated type 2 endoleak presented with a ruptured aneurysm in their follow-up. And so uh, there actually wasn't any difference in aneurysm-related mortality, including in patients who had a type 2 endoleak with sac expansion greater than 5 millimeters per year. And so uh, it was what was really interesting is that they actually found that patients with a persistent type 2 endoleak actually had increased survival compared to those who didn't have a type 2 endoleak. And that probably, the three of us were talking about this before we started recording, but this probably is related to increased surveillance of these patients, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, so, you know, all of this is to say that the, this 
these studies of relatively few patients and, you know, single center kind of um, conservative management studies have really set the stage for the current treatment paradigm for most surgeons around conservative management of endo leaks um, rather than these more traditional kind of aggressive uh, guidelines. And so um, the guidelines really recommend individualized decision-making around type 2 endo leaks, um, but that this should probably be based on some combination of, you know, aneurysm size, expansion of the sac, type and size of inflow and outflow vessels, and then really the presence of symptoms. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where we're at with respect to the guidelines. Yeah, thanks, Craig. And I think to circle back around to the, the case today, I think this decision-making here for our patient involves, he had a one-year increase in the aortic diameter of almost one centimeter. So initially when this patient was managed, he was revealed to have the type 2 endoleak rising from bilateral L3 lumbar arteries. And initially he was taken to the OR to try to do a coil embolization of those lumbar arteries via access through the internal iliac arteries bilaterally. And, and although that at the time um, negated those lumbar arteries, he eventually was continued to be followed as all patients with endovascular devices should be. And he had a stable aneurysm sac size for three years. But then unfortunately on CT scan when during his follow-up, his aneurysm began to grow. And again, it was noted that he had a recurrence of a type a 2 endoleak, and now his aneurysm was measuring 7.6 centimeters, so now a substantial growth. And it was actually arising from an accessory right renal artery causing another type 2 endoleak. So now this patient has had you know, one type 2 endoleak causing some aneurysm growth, attempted treatment that was thought to be successful, but over time continues to have aneurysm growth because of a new endoleak that has popped up. So, so Nick, I think if you had a patient like this that was presented to your clinic, and indeed this patient was referred to us and has had recurrent growth, sac growth of multiple endoleaks, uh, how would you kind of decide how to treat this patient or what steps would you kind of navigate in these waters? You know, thanks. You know, I think endoleaks are super frustrating for all vascular surgeons um, to deal with, and especially one that is recurrent, which unfortunately is not uncommon. Um, you know, I think first to kind of think about this, um, you know, this patient had a had a aneurysm sac that was growing. I think, you know, in my practice, I typically will embolize when they're over five millimeters, just because personally, I think that the data isn't great in any other case. And so I'm a little more conservative in that case. And I embolize at five millimeters. And when they can continue to, um, to grow on imaging, you start, you have to really start thinking about why they're growing and think of other culprits potentially that are there. Um, and that should also influence kind of what, what your next approach will be. Importantly, I think um, some data from the overtrial from the VA that was published back in 2015 actually showed that the incidence of late type 2 endoleaks is actually not insignificant at all. And, and they actually had about uh, when you look at all the um, all the patients who have endoleaks, almost 20% of the endoleaks in the overtrial were discovered late after two years. So this is not an uncommon situation at all. So once you find one, you really want to think, how do I go about going after this thing? And I think my first approach is always has traditionally traditionally been transfemoral access, so transarterial um, to start and try and embolize if it's lumbars or if it's IMA um, and try and embolize from that step. Uh, I used to use a lot of translumbar approaches um, to embolize in people who um, 
did not have a successful transarterial approach. Um, and I think that's really changed as I've gotten more comfortable with trying transcaval approaches. Uh, and I, I know there's been a lot more discussion of direct sac puncture, um, you know, or going through the transgraft approaches to, uh, to embolization as well. And I think those are viable options. But my first step is usually take them back to the, uh, to the uh, uh, OR or angio suite and do a transarterial approach to start, really get a good um, uh, idea of where the endoleaks are rising from. And then if that's the case and you still can't get this thing embolized successfully, usually then my next step will go transcable as long as it's on that side of the cava. And if it's not on that side of the cava, then think about some of these other approaches. Th thanks, Nick. I think that's a great summary and algorithm of how, how to manage um, expanding aortic aneurysm sacs in the setting of a type 2 endoleak. And I think that it's important for each person to develop an algorithm of treatment options that they're comfortable with when managing these, these endoleaks in, in, a, in, a, um, in a similar fashion. So, so for this specific patient case that we're talking about today, I, for what we did is the patient was taken to the angio suite and actually underwent a transfemoral angiogram and revealed no evidence of back bleeding from the renal artery and in fact did not have an evidence of what could be seen as a type 1 or type 2 endoleak. However, because of the continued expansion of the aneurysm sac, we decided to approach it in a transcable fashion. So for this, we obtained access to the right common femoral vein. And then we had an area where the uh, vena cava was abutting against the Anderson sac. We were able to directly puncture from the vena cava into the aortic Anderson sac in order to obtain access into that excluded aneurysm. Um, from there, we were able to pack a bunch of penumbra coils, or you can use any specific coil of your choice, but in order to kind of fill up the void for the Anderson sac and prevent that from expanding. Overall, the patient did well. From that initial procedure, and the thought was that um, that would help negate any residual endoleak that the patient had in place. Um, he was seen initially on his one-month follow-up, and the CT scans showed no, no significant endoleak and a stable sac size. But then um, at his six-month follow-up, unfortunately, it showed a new endoleak, a new type 2 endoleak, despite all of our attempts to try to repair this. And now the sac has actually grown to 8.5 centimeters. So... I think, Nick, why, why don't you go through, we've talked a lot about endovascular options for endoleak management, and what's kind of your algorithm when you think that end, enough is enough on the endovascular end? Yeah, uh, you know, I think in this case, it sounds like uh, this, this patient needs to have definitive treatment, which definitive treatment is, is open surgery, I think, um, in all of our opinions. Um, you know, when you think about an endoleak, I think um, type 2 endoleaks are super common. We know that they're common. We know that the majority of type 2 endoleaks, based on you know data from long-term surveillance in the registries and from um, some of these multi-center studies, has shown that you know almost three-quarters of type 2 endoleaks are going to regress. What do you do with the ones that don't regress? Well, like I said, you have to really worry about are they hiding in a cult um, uh, type uh, type 1 or 3 or some other type of endoleak that could be more malignant. Um, since almost all the ruptures that you're going to see in any of the studies that are published, whether it's kind of long-term studies from over or, or other, um, you know, other randomized controlled trials or registry data, they all have shown that the, the ruptures happen in patients who have a type 1 endoleak in particular. And so, you know, once you do that, you really have to think about how are we going to treat this patient? This patient grew pretty damn fast for it to be a type 2 endoleak. It'd make me really worry that we're really missing some other endoleaks. So I think now you think, okay, we got to go open. Um, and I think in our experience here, most of the time open means a trans 
uh, abdominal approach, not an RP approach for most of these, and we're comfortable getting control above the renal arteries. I think when we're explaining for a endograft that's that's endoleak and it's not for infection, you don't necessarily always have to take out all the graft. You can actually leave some of the graft behind and sew to it so you don't totally disrupt the aorta in the, in the paravisceral segment or in the pararenal um, para segment um, to remove all that um, endograft. Uh, in case of infection, it's a little bit different story. But for this in particular, you don't necessarily have to do that. And so a trans-abdominal approach, I think, is our mainstay. Um, you have to be careful when you're taking out the endograft and you're taking out the limbs, if you are taking the limbs out completely, that you don't dissect the iliac arteries and that you have good exposure and control so that you do have a good chance at actually getting good outflow. Because I've seen in other in other cases where people have pulled out the limbs and occluded a an iliac because they've completely dissected the iliac pulling out a limb. So you got to be real careful with that. Um, I think what's most amazing when you take out an endograft um, and, and an open approach for one of these persistent endoleaks, it's amazing how many lumbars are bleeding in your in your face when you take the endograft out. And it really goes to show that, that lumbars can produce quite a bit of bleeding in these cases, and, and it's not always surprising. But I do think it's also very common that when you take it out, you see that there's almost no fixation or no uh, apposition up at the top at the at the top of the graft, and you have a lot of type one endoleaks visible up there. Yeah, thanks, Nick. And I think this really highlights what we did in our case. We, the patient was taken back to the OR. We were able to explant the the graft, but left behind some of the residual fixation in the distal limb to sew to, and we are ended up doing a Dacron um, hemoshield graft replacement of the aorta. And just like you called it, the patient had multiple lumbars that were back bleeding in our face that likely contributed to his expansion. And despite you know the multiple uh, endovascular attempts to try to resolve this endoleak in a more um, minimally invasive fashion, I think at the end of the day, for this patient, an open definitive repair and resolution of the aneurysm growth was 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 the correct form for him. That's perfect. Well, um, you know, I really appreciate uh, Frank and Nick taking us through that case. Um, you know, this is was a really challenging case for uh, for us, and you know, certainly kind of illustrates how frustrating these patients can be uh, with respect to you know the repeated interventions. And and I think the other take home point here that I want to emphasize is that. Um, setting expectations with patients early about these things is really important as well because, you know, uh, it's not uncommon to have these things crop up. And I think it's important to let patients know that, that the surveillance is for a reason and that, uh, you know, you can never really predict what's going to happen. And, and the effect of repeated interventions can be really tough on patients as well. So um, with that, you know, I'll wrap up and uh, just give a little summary of what we talked about today. We discussed the five different types of endoleaks. We talked about indications for type 2 endoleak management. We didn't really touch on uh, the other endoleaks, but generally speaking, I don't think there's much argument about type 1 endoleak management. The general consensus is you should fix those at the time that you put the endograft in uh, and that none of them can be watched. Uh, and the uh, remaining endoleaks, I think, are uncommon enough that it's probably not worth talking about and wasting everybody's time. But um, the uh, final thing we talked about was uh, operative planning and, you know, the, the different approaches for endoleak management, both endovascularly, and we discussed the open management, uh, and then uh, some kind of pitfalls about open uh, and endovascular repair. So uh, with that, we'll wrap up. Uh, again, thanks, Frank and Nick, and uh, dominate the day. Dominate today. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.